It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio. Flavored with a dash of humor. Welcome to intelligent, irreverent talk about plants and the planet they grow on. Your questions, comments, and participation are always welcome on Facebook and Instagram at The Mike Novak Show and at Mike Now on Twitter. Good planets are hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. True currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. Good planets are in the main. Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Jet streams, perfect air. And here they are, Peggy Malecki and Mike Nova. Good planets are in the main. I should have waited. I, sh- I shouldn't have waited. I should have just hit the uh, thing while you were looking down and trying to find something on, oh, uh, on the no, floor. No, I was trying to fix. I was trying to fix the rug under my desk, which was keeping me from um, pushing my chair forward. Oh, okay. I thought maybe you were looking for a cookie you dropped on the floor. Um, no. So, no. Okay. Uh, welcome no. to the show, everybody. Welcome to the show. Uh, I'm looking at welcome, the. Welcome. Yeah, and the Chicago. Wait, welcome, 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 welcome. Yeah, I know. It's just uh, I don't have. Oh wait. Ah! And boy, it's what your dinger not oh, working? There we go. Okay. No, I wasn't able to get the volume up on my. There we are. Now, now you're coming in loud. Oh, uh, you don't loud. need. I don't oh, need a microphone most of the time. So, all right. Uh, welcome everybody to uh, the program. Boy, have we got a good show for you today! It's okay. May Day. Happy May Day, everyone! Whoops, try not to make the uh, the Earth shake yeah. here. Bah, 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 bah. Um, it's, it's May Day. It's uh, all sorts of things today. Why? What else? Um, Arbor. Well, Skeets is Arb- Happy Arbor Day. Day. Happy Arbor Day. That was um, yesterday. We've got a tribute I- to Arbor Day in the show. Um, so Skeet, hang on in the, uh, is it the first break? I think it's the first break. Yeah. That we have a little bit of a treat to Arbor or tribute to Arbor Day, which was yesterday. So uh, I hope mm-hmm. you were all out hugging a tree. If you didn't hug a tree yesterday, please hug a tree today. Uh, day. or plant one, which would be, uh, even better if, if you could or do both. that. Um, yeah. Can, can I do a product but, placement? But don't, uh, oh, product placement. Here we go. There we go. It's also May, which means the new Natural Awakening Chicago is out. Woohoo! All right. Well, give me a, a sense of what is in the new it is Natural. It women's wellness issue. Um, so paying tribute to moms of all sorts, including bird moms and pet moms. Uh, and we have uh, a lot of women's things, but we've got a fabulous article about growing herbs and veggies in container gardens. Uh, Lisa Hilgenberg from Chicago Botanic Garden, who's been on this very show, yep. is interviewed in that article, as is um, Petra from Fruition Seeds and some other people. Cool. 
And yeah, so nachicago.com. Uh, nachicago.com. And of course, you can pick it up at various places uh, in mm-hmm. the area. Where where can folks find nachicago.com? Um, you can find it in the greater Chicago area, city of Chicago, Cook County, Lake County, McHenry, DuPage, um, couple selections in Will County, like all of the nature centers uh, for the Forest Preserve District have it. Um, they don't have the new May one yet, but they will. They're on their way. Uh, uh, yeah, libraries, well, yeah. workout places, independent grocery stores, not big box grocery stores. <laughs> we won't yeah. talk about that. We don't we, have we, enough time. <laughs> well, we had we had a discussion the other day about some of the the big stores and what they do and what they don't do for for folks. Mm-hmm. So it's just yeah. something uh, to keep in mind. So and you, yeah. yeah, so you said May first. Well, that's one of them. There's another May 1st kickoff today. Uh, of course, which this, is what we're going to be talking about on the show. Is that which, what you're talking no, about? No, no, the sign over your shoulder. Well, see, now I was I was going to, uh, I, I'm, I'm desperately cheating here, tap dancing. No, let's talk about what we're going to do in the show because then I can put that up because uh, I am uh, uh, desperately right now uh, trying to move a file so that I can pop that up because I forgot that I wanted to have that file up here and then I, I didn't have that file up here. So hang on two seconds while I find that file. But uh, today... So uh, while he's looking for the file, I was going to say, everybody who's out there who's hitting like, please share the show. Yes. Please tell all your friends right now. Come join, come listen for the next two hours. You're, you're going to want to hear this. Um, yeah, and tell them how they can do that. Um, they can go to the Mike Novak show on YouTube. You can go to the Mike Novak show on Facebook and share it on your own feed right now. Tell people, come on, watch, start watching. And, you can go and, later. And, and MikeNovak.net. Oh, and of course the light goes off. What Thank happened? You. That just went <laughs> off. I, I, it, it started doing that yesterday. It just, just kind of goes off and I, no idea. Well, that, yeah. that happened to me yesterday, but that was the whole house and All the right. neighborhood. So. But the other thing you were talking about that starts today is All right. The Chicago Excellence in Gardening Awards are back. Um with live judges, not dead judges, but live judges in your <laughs> gardens. <laughs> we should send out dead judges. Um and um um no, af- judge bots. Uh, after uh, Judge Bots, yes, after a two-year absence due to the pandemic, you know, of course, we, we made up for it last year and the year before by having the 60-second uh, garden video challenge. But it's not the same as people sending in their gardens and, um, and uh, registering to have somebody come out in person and say, hey, this is a beautiful garden. And then we have an award ceremony at the end of the season, and we give away these fantastic signs um, that are made by the uh, the Forest Preserve District of Cook County, uh, who is one of our partners in this endeavor. Um, and among the partners are Illinois Extension and Chicago Community Gardeners Association, of course, Natural Awakenings Chicago, um, Forest Preserve District, um, Bold Bison Consulting. So I wanted folks to know that they can go to um chicago gardening awards.org it's right there on the screen i'm just leaving this up so everybody can see no matter what kind of garden you have 
Um, you can enter it, uh, but you have to live in the city of Chicago. We'd love to expand it, but uh, this might kill us as it is. And um, uh, we've we've reached forty three wards and and seventy six communities uh, in the first three years that we did this before the pandemic. And uh, now we want to hit all fifty wards uh, this year in twenty twenty two. And um, we 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 start accepting entries today we actually have an entry peggy already mm-hmm. so wow um people are are on it and you'll see this posted uh i'm going to pop it up on my social media today after the show and on other social media and you're going to start to see it um all over the place so if you got a garden you you're have, proud proud of you should enter i was going to say we have an amazing committee working behind the scenes this year great people. we have pulled great in a l- wonderful talented people helping this year. So looking forward to it. So we're very excited. So I think we've left that up there uh, long enough. And I just wanted to make sure that people saw that again, go to Chicago gardening awards.org. You can enter today, even if you're not sure how good your garden's going to look um, in, in a month or two, um, you know, you can and anticipate. Like, I was going to say, if you'd like to be a judge, we are right now recruiting volunteer judges. So send a send a note to Mike Mike Novak if you're interested in judging. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, my uh, my light is is it going to do that all day? Is the light just going to pop? Light goes on. The light goes on. The light goes off. Okay. But today uh, we're very we're very happy to say we've got uh, uh, two really important subjects in addition to meteorologist Rick DeMaio. And if you're a Rick DeMaio fan, if you're a Ricky D fan, if you're a Doctor Rick fan, you better get your Rick today. Because um, uh, he's not going to be with us for a month, and um, uh, he's uh, he's off doing. You know, he's got to celebrate Mother's Day, and it takes all month for him. So he's he was just letting us know he's that he's out and about this month. Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, and uh, so we'll see him again in June. So uh, if you want it, your forecast, uh, you better get it today. Aww, he's getting a lot of he's getting a lot of sad tear emojis just now oh geez uh and i forgot to say happy may day which i just popped up there because i'm glad you reminded me because i wasn't even looking at our chat room um and it was also rick's birthday yesterday so yeah so we're gonna we want everybody to sucker punch him with birthday greetings um and uh we'll uh the best ones we'll read on the air and uh make him as uncomfortable as we possibly can all right so before we get to that though Um, the first part of the show, we're talking compost and we're talking international compost awareness week. We'll get to that in a second. It's very important. If you, if you don't use compost in your backyard, I want to say you're not a gardener. You're just not a gardener. If you're, if you have no interest in compost, uh, we will get to that in a second. Uh, but in the second, (laughs) Oh, Alexandra, is there another meteorologist in the meantime? Sure. You know, I've got six or seven in the stable there, just ready to go. They, they're, they're just champing at the bit to get on my program. Uh, I have no idea. So uh, um, at any rate, uh, before we get uh, or at, right after our compost uh, presentation this morning, we're going to be talking about the avian flu that is going around the country that has killed already 27 million birds, mostly poultry. Uh, and what does this mean for your backyard? What does this mean for your feeders and your bird baths in your backyard? 
we and have witch feeders. Uh, right. And it's, there's been a lot of information. Some of it's been confusing. Uh, so mm -hmm. I picked up the phone and called John Bates at the Field Museum uh, in the bird department there. He is going to be with us and ex try to explain because even he says it's, uh, it's tricky um, that uh, there's no one answer. Illinois, have, got, yeah. Illinois has different guidelines than other states. Right. Weird. And, and like most science, um, there are no hard and fast answers. So we're going to examine it the best we can and, and try to give you best practices for your backyard and for Illinois and for the Midwest. Uh, John Bates from the field museum will be here at 10 o'clock. So you don't want to miss that. So uh, meanwhile, though, as I mentioned, it is international compost awareness week which is why we have empty screens on our... Oh, there we go. Uh, uh, <laughs> for a second, I thought you guys had gone away. You just got bored and you said, I'm, 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 I'm out of here. Uh, let us uh, bring in our, our panel here, and I'm just checking to make sure everybody's audio is on. Excellent. Everybody's audio is on. And up in your upper right, because I need my cheaters here to make this work, is uh, Marlan Rempal. Uh, she's uh, with the Solid Waste Agency of Lake County, also called Swalco. Uh, in the lower left uh, is James Kinn, who's the superintendent for the Vernon Hills Park District. Uh, and in the lower right is Vita Papadinkas. Uh, did I did I did I nail Vetus. it? Vetus? Vetus? I said Vetus. I said Vetus. A uh, few well, more shows, you'll get it right. Uh, <laughs> all right, that's all the time we have, folks. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Uh, he's with uh, Save Our Soil, LLC. He is a, a soil scientist. So uh, welcome all of you to the program. I think we have to start, though, not with anybody. And I'm going to cheat here my screen. Excuse me, because uh, there we go. Um, we're not going to start with any of you, but we're going to start with the good folks at uh, the Illinois Food Scrap uh, Coalition because they are the people who who helped make this happen. Uh, they wanted to promote International Compost Awareness Week. And, uh, Amy Bartucci, especially. Shout well, Amy to. Bartucci and, and Kate Caldwell, um, mm -hmm. they each get a ding, uh, who have been behind the scenes making this happen because they said it's really important that we talk about composting. And it is, there's a lot going on this week um and you can go to their website and see all of the information that's happening you know we're we're the kickoff for this which is i'm so honored to be part of that for their international compost awareness week program so if you go to uh their website which is linked and my blog it's uh illinois composts IllinoisComposts.org, and uh, you go right to the site, and you can find out all about the activities that are are going on, and uh, um, um, just a wealth of information happening this week. And part of what's going on here is, and I will get to those some of those activities in just a second. But let's go to Marlan. Uh, because you work with Swalco, 
And you got a grant recently to promote composting um, in Lake County. And by the way, Peggy lives in Lake County. Um, yeah. And, and we're going to show some photos in a second that look a lot like Peggy's yard, uh, which is, uh, <laughs> and, and I don't mean that in a good way. Um, no, just some of the soil uh, that some of the stuff I've seen in your yard. You're going, huh? Um, but uh, uh, tell us about that grant that you received. Uh, sure. and how does that bring in some of the people on the program today? Sure. And I, I just want to reiterate, too, for everybody to check out the uh, Illinois Food Scrap Coalitions. There's like a ton of activities and programs and speakers and panels going on today. And so. like I said, I'm going to get to that in a second. Yeah, great. So, so the grant um, uh, is a, it's a USDA grant. It's a two-year grant, and we started this back in fall of 2020. So we're in our second year. We're going to be wrapping up the grant this fall. However, there's a lot of good work that's going to continue. That kind of sprang from this grant. That's going to continue even after, you know, we've completed our reports and turned all of those in. Um, and there's really kind of multiple objectives. We're going to be talking mainly about one of them today, but there are multiple objectives to this grant. Um, first one is a food waste diversion. And um, it's it's a really um, huge issue in across the country today, uh, increasing the use or increasing food waste diversion uh, and efforts going on all around. Um, and we're focusing here um, in this region uh, of Illinois uh, by um, coming up with programs and marketing tools to work with our municipalities, our members. And Swaco has um, about 40 plus municipalities that are members of the agency that we work with closely. So we have a great uh, collaborative um, group um, of communities here that are uh, working on this. And currently we have about 27, um, 27, 28 uh, communities out of our 40 plus that already have programs in place. Some of them have had them for a number of years. So I would say across the middle of the country where it's pretty progressive to have these um, curbside composting programs at home. So we're trying to provide education and tools to help our municipalities and other groups um, promote back, backyard composting as well as curbside composting. And I know I have a number of uh, friends and acquaintances, not only do they do, um, not only do they do um, backyard composting, but they participate in their communities curbside composting program because you can also throw additional uh, items that might not be great for the backyard compost pile uh, into your curbside program. And, 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 and I have to jump in just for a second here and say that uh, if you live in Chicago, uh, you're, you're out of luck. Um, cur uh, curbside composting is a pipe dream, and uh, they, ca they can barely... And, and again, I'm sorry. To, the blue to, yeah, they can barely pick up yard waste uh, without making you jump through hoops of fire. Um, and that's a shame because it's, you know, the largest, the third largest oh. city in the, in the country is uh, that 
um, behind the times. But a lot of our, our uh, uh, suburban areas do it very, very well, including many in Lake County. So yeah, yeah, and 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 it's it's really um, some people may be familiar with some of the stats that are out there, but it's it's a little daunting. Forty percent of all the food produced in the United States today for consumption is wasted. Forty percent, and of that, twenty five percent comes from our own homes. So if we're either backyard composting or curbside composting, we're we're doing one of the best things we can do. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I've, there's a production line in my house, which is, you know, every time a food scrap uh, is uh, available, it goes into a bin and then it goes out to the compost pile. And sometimes yeah. sometimes I've got uh, just huge containers lined up on the back porch ready to go in the compost pile when I get the initiative to do it. But they're always <laughs> going to end up there. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, folks can do If you have a yard, you can compost. Um, it's and it's easy it's doable <laughs> yeah that's when we talked yeah. to amy and kate on the show uh back in february they we did a a whole segment on on backyard composting and how important that is but as you mentioned it's also the community yeah. efforts to compost uh so you got this yeah. grant and it's not as if the these municipalities don't understand the importance what was why was it so important to have this grant to bring them into the program so to be able to shed more light on what's happening across the country, um, to provide resources and education to our, to our members, to our community, to our municipalities. Um, but some of the other pieces to this grant too are, um, so once we're generating all of this material too, we also have to build up a really robust, vibrant, circular economy for this. So once we're generating, then where does all of this material go? So we're also working with um, community gardens and farmers and farmlands, small and large uh, across the Lake County region. Um, We're working with our municipal members and encouraging them to consider utilizing compost on their, you know, public government sites, their public works, their landscaping. so so that's another major piece is once we start getting all of this material and, and encouraging and having people participating in either backyard composting, uh, curbside composting, or both, um, then we have to have and develop that circular economy for the rest of the material. And then um, another important piece, which is why we have uh, VITAS, we're so fortunate to have VITAS and James here today, Um, When we started this grant, we started looking to a number of people across the community that we could collaborate with. And um, we have um, collaborators and partners like ISTC, the Illinois Sustainable Technology Center, University of Illinois Extension. Uh, We have um, Brightbeat, um, civic agents helping with some of the marketing and some of the other pieces. and, and a whole crew of farms and community gardens. Uh, Vitas, of course, was one of the first people we thought of. Uh, we've worked with him for a number of years and um, for the soil studies and, and that mm-hmm. piece. And then James and I have known each other for a, a, close to a couple decades, a decade and a half. And Swatho and um, the Vernon Hills Park District have had 
like an amazing relationship over the years, a real close partnership. And we still, to this day, we have annual events that we do together, uh, mm -hmm. sometimes with the village of Vernon Hills um, and other initiatives and things we've partnered on over the years. And James and I have had a number of conversations about the community garden there. Um, we're also establishing a network of community gardeners. We wanna bring them all mm -hmm. together, share resources, have education demo days, but James and I were talking about some of the issues and some of the challenges, particularly at Vernon Hills Park District. So when we started this grant, I immediately thought we've got to get Vernon Hills Park District involved in this project, too. And well, uh, let's uh, let's. Let's uh, let's talk to James a little bit. And I, one thing before we do that, I would just want to reiterate something you said that's really important is and that is the idea that 40 percent of our 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 food is wasted in the United States. That's insane, uh, which is and why 25 percent out of households um, out of our own. Households. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, which is why the Illinois Food Scrap Coalition is so important and their efforts to draw in all kinds of uh, partners uh, to yep. address food waste and to promote composting because the two go hand in hand. They, they, they just do. Um, and one last kind of important point too, is that when you think about that food waste, you, you can also think about all the resources that went into making that food. Those are all getting wasted too, the water, the energy, um, and also that beautiful, we're also losing when we waste it, that beautiful amendment that could be produced, this wonderful thing we call compost. All right, and we're going to get to that. Vetus is going to have a lot about the, the soil guy. We all, I always love having soil guys uh, and, and gals uh, on the show to talk about the importance of compost. But let's go to James Kim, superintendent at uh, the Vernon Hills Park District. Why is it you wanted to get involved in this program? Well, Mike, um, it really started with a connection with Merlan um, back in 2019 when this Go Green Vernon Hills Lincolnshire group approached us about having a compost bin at our community garden, the one that you're going to be showing a little later. And at the time, I kind of was a little hesitant because it's in the middle of nowhere, a lot of animals, but I agreed to it. And in the same breath, we were struggling with the community garden. And so I took it upon myself to take two of the plots and I added mushroom compost and wood chip compost that we have been storing since um, Emerald Ash Borer and uh, Dutch Elm disease. And Merlan and I just got talking and she found out about the USDA grants. I was on board right from the get-go because the soil in that community garden really needed something more. And we really did not want to use synthetic fertilizers. Um, so that was the beginning of, for us at least, for this well, composting. You, 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 you talk about the, the soil. Uh, Vita sent me some photos. Uh, is this an accurate representation of what you were dealing with in your soil? Yes, that is, um, that is very accurate. Um, a lot of clay. The site previous to being a garden was just a parcel of land next to a railroad track with a lot of invasive species, including buckthorn, which is notorious for stripping the land of all nutrients. And that's what you see is left after we cut everything down. Well, and here's an aerial view. As you mentioned, you can see the railroad track there. 
um, and you can see that the green area, uh, you're telling me most of that was buckthorn. Yeah, a lot of buckthorn, honeysuckle, and the little trees that you see were all being choked out by grapevines. So they were soon to be dead anyways. Right. And so what you did uh, to start is uh, you had, uh, it looks to me like you sort of wiped it clean so that you could have a new start. Is that what happened here? Yes, we, in 2014, we worked with the village of Vernon Hills. This was their parcel, and we wanted to build our new maintenance facility for our parks department. And in the same project, to the right of that screen, you'll see where the community garden is going to pop up on the next screen. And uh, All right, well, let's, let's show that. Okay, and, and, and where's, yes, the community, look at the, where the cars are parked, and then you can see the new building there. And just to the right... Uh, of where the cars are is the community garden, and I have uh, actually a slightly better look at it here. Um, voila! And we're get, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves here, but uh, uh, I wanted you to see that this is ultimately what happened. So, uh, but let's go back to uh, as you were trying to work with it. You you mentioned uh, before. Um, or, or in in some of the stuff that I've seen, that you tried to garden the area, but uh, gardeners were facing all kinds of difficulties, and their plants were not doing well. No, exactly right. So everyone was very hopeful. They always are for the past six years, um, between May, June, and then about right after July 4th, plants, they stunted. Um, a lot of them would produce vegetables and fruit, but they'd be half the size and then they start to wither and gardeners would give up uh, it wasn't lack of water we do have a water source there and people were out there daily but you get a bad storm and the clay holds water and so the plants kind of drown or on the opposite they water mornings and then by two o'clock the soil is completely dried out and mm -hmm. it looks like the picture you had shown before well, I've got I have more pictures uh, like that to show. We need to take a short break, but uh, we're going to continue this story about uh, what happened in, in, in Vernon Hills with the uh, community garden there. We're talking to uh, Marlan Rampal, uh, James Kim, uh, Vitas Papadinska. Uh, oh, see, now I, I can't do it. Pa <laughs> Papadinskis. There we go. Papadinskis. He said, just just look at it. It's it's easy. Yeah, easy for you. Say it time, three times real fast. Not you, but I can do Yeah, just. Okay. Uh, it's the Don't stop. Yes. And uh, we're talking about International Compost Awareness Week. It starts today. This is a kickoff for that. So uh, tell your friends if they're if they're not watching right now, they should uh, grab us on the stream and and join the conversation. Uh, you can uh, go to Facebook. You can go to YouTube. You can go to Twitter and at MikeNovak.net, M-I-K-E-N-O-W-A-K. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. I was pretty well considered an outlier and nuts. And today, after the nursery with the kids and everybody involved is still considered groundbreaking in the sense that we do it just different. Over in a possibility place in 1978, by 1982, we were strictly into natives and have been ever since. A possibility place nursery grows more trees, shrubs, and perennials than I can count. 
several hundred species from large shade trees to very small perennial plants. There is a native plant for every place in your yard. From trees to shrubs to flowers and grasses, they flower just as pretty. They flower on time. They bring in butterflies. They make the yard more dynamic. And every time you do a planting is an opportunity to add a native or to integrate a native into your landscape and make it richer. From spring seed and soil treatments to summer foliar feeding to fall stubble digesters, Blazing Star provides microbial tools from Tinyo Biologicals for natural and organic farmers. They have solutions for home gardeners, too. And Blazing Star also offers agroecological education and consulting, especially for permaculture work in Zones 4 and 5. Learn more about these great folks and great techniques at blazing-star.com. Here at Bartlett Tree Experts, we spend a lot of time talking about the importance of trees. Here are some fun facts for you to take to your next Arbor Day celebration. Pine trees grow on six of seven continents, with Antarctica being the only one left out. A big tree with lots of large leaves can release as much as 300 to 400 gallons of moisture into the air each day. The roots of a tree grow underground, helping it to remain stable, providing water and important nutrients. Tree roots can grow two to three times the width of a canopy. Hello from Oakland Park in South Florida. Water and nutrients travel up the tree trunk, throughout the branches, all the way out to the leaves. And welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Everybody settle in, turn on your cameras, here we go. Um, and happy Arbor Day yesterday, our thanks to our friends at Bartlett Tree Experts. Um, and uh, we, uh, we appreciate their support. And uh, like I said earlier, go plant a tree. Go hug mm-hmm. one. Don't, don't hug the one you just planted because you'll probably break it. Uh, but uh, hug, hug a big and- one. <laughs> And by the way, welcome to Possibility Place. As uh, yes, as a new sponsor on the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. And uh, that's a great place to go to and order your native plants. Speaking of trees, you can get great native trees there, trees, shrubs, perennials, and more. So go to possibilityplace.com. All right. One of the things I wanted to pop up because we're talking about that today International Compost Awareness Week, May 1 to 7. And you might see this um, when, you, uh, when you are uh, uh, going to the uh, Illinois Food Scrap Coalition site. And, of course, uh, they have, as I said, they've got a lot uh, going on here. And some of the stuff that's happening... This week, as I said, we're we're kicking it off today, but uh, today and May eighth, from one to four p.m. and Wednesday from four to uh, at, uh, uh, from five to seven p.m. Uh, there's a compost gift back. Pay five dollars per five gallons for finished compost from Collective Resource Compost, and they used to be a sponsor on our show, so they they have supported us, and I love Collective Resource Compost. Um, on Monday tomorrow. 
It's the uh, uh, it's another part of the kickoff. What's cooking with IFC, USCC, and ICAW? Well, that's uh, all those acronyms uh, are about compost. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 acronym city here, isn't it? Um, and uh, uh, there's a keynote uh, tomorrow, the second, from twelve thirty to one thirty p.m. Um, the speaker Finney and Makepeace from Kiss the Ground, and uh, and again, you can find all of this information and register and be part of it by going to Illinois Composts with an S on the end dot org. Um, uh, Tuesday, May 3rd, there's an Illinois Farmer Expert Panel. You hear farmers <clears throat> describe their farms, crop, operation, and compost use. And then Friday, on thir- uh, finally on Thursday, May 5th, uh, on-farm tours learn the benefits of regenerative agriculture and composting from uh, Tulip Tree Gardens and Christensen Farms. Uh, and they are, these are recordings, so you're not going to actually be going in person. All of this, of course, is, is, is um, online. Uh, and if you want to participate, go to IllinoisComposts.org. Also go to my website, go to MikeNovak.net. In the blog post for today's show, I have the links to all of this, and you can certainly be part of the celebration this week. Uh, as we mentioned before, we're talking to uh, – I'm not going to do the names because I'll just screw them up again, so you can see them on the screen. Um, Merlin, James, and Vitas. There we go. That makes it a lot easier. Thanks, thanks. Um, uh, we were talking to James about Vernon Hills. You know, here's an interesting thing. Um, it's uh, we if you if you live in northeastern Illinois, you know what clay is like. I, I talk at garden clubs all the time, and and it's this the soil is clay, it's alkaline. Um, and one of the things I tell folks because uh, because it's so alkaline. Um, I say there's a secret to growing blueberries because blueberries like acidic, acidic soil. And the secret to growing blueberries in northern Illinois is move to Michigan. Uh, go to the farmer's market, yes. <laughs> or go to the farmer's market because that's – or put them in a container. But even in a container, you're yeah. not going to be – it's not going to be as satisfactory for a lot of people as, as putting them on the land. But that's it. But those are the things we deal with. and. And 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 sometimes folks in the city like me have it better. Um, my soil is when I came here it wasn't great, but it wasn't crazy clay hard clay. It was stuff that it was probably you know I'm not I'm a mile couple of miles from the lake, um, but it was not horrible. Um, and maybe it's uh, over the years it had been amended enough times, but I've added compost over the years and now. It's fabulous. Um, I wouldn't say I can just stick my hand in and plant things, but I don't have to dig really at all. I don't turn the soil. I just add more compost each year. Um, and, James, that's kind of what you're trying to get to uh, in Vernon Hills, isn't it? Yeah, that is exactly correct. So we added two to three inches back in uh, fall of 2020, and then again this past fall in 21 to really get that soil profile up and out of the clay. Um, and just so that the plants have something to grow in. And there's a good shot. It's about 40, we put about 40 yards in each time. Yeah, well, you know, and let me, through. now this is for a community garden. And, and here's something that uh, when, I, when I talk to garden clubs about compost, <laughs> this is what I'm thinking of. When I say you need to put compost in your yard, this is what I'm thinking of. What they're thinking of can be quite different 
Um, what I think they're often thinking of is what are you getting in a bag at the Home mm-hmm. Depot? Okay. Um, and We're coming out of the bin in the yard. Yeah. And, and Vetus, uh, I'm, I'm going to skip to you very quick and we'll get back to James. What's the difference between what you're getting in that big truck and in a bag at a box store? Uh, so bag material, it's been on the shelf for a bit. So whatever you're getting in bulk is fairly fresh material. So it's a stable product, really reliable. Uh, but the bag stuff, you're paying for the packaging. It's going to be a lot more expensive. You can buy a yard bulk material between 35 and $45 a cubic yard. And you go into a box store and you're going to pay for maybe a cubic foot and a half, 10, 15, 20 dollars maybe. So just in that sense, you're getting a lot less with a product that's been sitting around for a while that might not have the same punch that you would uh, buying it in bulk. And uh, it's a lot more work, really, in my opinion, uh, just to have a whole bunch of bags filled up in your in your uh, back of your car, have it delivered, have it dropped, spend a half a day spreading it out. Uh, because bag-wise, I don't think you'll ever purchase enough uh, to satisfy your soil's needs. That's so a, you th- might as well- yeah. That's that's yeah. a so really good. How much is enough? So Sorry. in James' case, in James's case, we went pretty crazy um, for small plots for community gardens. <sighs> a lot of these community gardens, they're 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 being built on suspect ground, which means no topsoil. Um, it's just clay. And so you have to rebuild a lot that was taken away when the, the land was developed, right? So mm-hmm. that space was invasive species. They cut down all the trees. They had to grade it to make it, you know, uh, and for engineering purposes, when they put the uh, building in, it's at the edge of a parking lot. So it's pretty compromised soil. So you go aggressive two to three inches a time, and that helps uh, counteract all the negatives that you're getting with that very clay soil. Uh, on a farm, you wouldn't go that aggressive. On a big farm that's growing corn or soybean, uh, a quarter inch to half an inch is is, is ample. Um, but for these community gardens that really need to build soil, uh, going aggressive with that two to three inches at a time uh, is really necessary. And I think what a lot of folks do is they think about the gardening and the plants first before they think about the soil. And that's an important step. My recommendation for folks who want to start a community garden someplace where it's like James's soil, be patient, give it a couple of years to build up. Uh, you're, uh, the first couple of years, your plants are not going to be as happy as you think they should be uh, because your soil is trying to catch up to a, a condition that it's going to give you um, really great growth. All right, so uh, uh, one other quick question. What would you say about the biology in a truckload of compost versus that bagged stuff? You're going to have a lot more biology. So compost is a living thing. There's a process, you know, the whole breakdown. You've got a ramping up where things warm up, active breaking down, then it cools off, but there's always life going on. And the further out you go from the composting process, the less you have in terms of microbiology. 
So if it's meaning, in a bag, meaning, yeah, meaning it's been bagged, um, it's it's um, it's sealed. Uh, you correct. have um, they do have a certain amount of moisture in there. You know there are standards for that. But one of the things that I've learned over the years is that there are no national standards for bagging compost. Are there? Am I wrong? That I need to catch up with. So okay. uh, we have the one entity that oversees compost quality is the U.S. Composting Council. And so they have STA, which is seal testing approval, I believe. Benjamin Crumstock has okay. been it, on it could be. It could be. I just, I just went off my rocker there. But um, it's no, not. No, but you're right. You're, yeah, I mean, you're right. Because what frustrates me is when they make uh, sales in terms of weight instead of volume because compost has such a great ability to hold water. So if you're charging by the pound, you might get a lot less compost because it's just a lot more water. So you should purchase by volume. And so that's kind of goes to what you're saying about the standards on what material you're buying when it's, when it's bagged. Okay. So, so let's... And where it came from. Right. And speaking, speaking of that, we have a question. Can you deliver to the south suburbs? Well, you have to find the folks in the south suburbs. And what we need to do... Uh, is uh, can I ask if any of you know of sources in the south suburbs uh, who can uh, purchase that kind of compost? And if you don't, we'll track it down. Um, so anyway, um, so let's look back at this 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 photo that I showed, uh, James. This is, uh, I assume, one of the plots in Vernon Hills uh, as you were adding compost. Yes, this is one of our plots. Um, each of the 36 garners did something different, and we allowed it. You can see in the top left corner they did rows, while this individual just put in three inches over the entire plot. Right. Yeah, because you know, at some point you gotta you gotta create a path. It's sort of a uh, a, a real thing. And uh, this is uh, what what are we looking at here? You, you've got a raised bed there. I see. So in this case, some moisture meter and yeah, and, and they built a raised bed. Um, either either so one. Yeah, that's a raised, yeah, that's a raised bed, and that's a moisture meter. And Vitas was taking the soil samples just to see, not just chemical wise, but see where the clay was laying mm -hmm. beneath the soil and how much how deep it was. Yeah, it's actually a uh, compaction meter. Um, hmm. So what we're looking at this is James's. Uh, James took it upon himself to have his own plot. So we had a control and treatment. So we split that plot in half and we applied compost on one half and we kept it with the native uh, soil on the other half. And, you know, one thing about clay soils, when it dries out, it's like cement. And I was just using the comp the compaction meter um, just to verify my suspicions that we're basically planting in, in cement when, when it dries out and make a comparison later, once we've added the compost, how much easier it is to work with the soil. And that's, James shared with me how early on in the community garden's life that these community gardens were really, community gardeners were really complaining about the workability of the soil. That it was just too hard to work with. It was unmanageable. And then you yeah. see in the background, Someone just gave up and just said, you know what, I'm just doing raised beds because it's just too too hard for me to work in the soil itself. You know, and that's that's a really good point because some people think 
uh, are, are going to go in the direction of a raised bed and others are going to say, you know what, I can amend this oil. I can make it better. What are the pros and cons of that? I think going into soil, you have a lot more temperature regulation. You have a lot better moisture management. Raised beds do tend to dry out faster. Uh, they heat up as well, which might be good in the, in the, in the springtime when you want to get planting sooner. Uh, the soil in the raised bed will, will heat up faster. But there's also that transition from whatever you have in the raised bed to whatever contact it has underneath. So if you don't mix up that top part with the native soil, you're going to have this texture difference that could cause some uh, water issues, some ponding. Um, it's kind of like having uh, uh, soaking at the bottom of a, of a potted plant. That's sort of that stage where the water just kind of builds right. up and it doesn't leak out. So yeah, you can right. have the same thing with a raised bed. We've got a couple of comments here real quick. Um, Snappy J Dog says Forest Park Community Garden, which is South Suburbs, buys compost from JKS Venture in Melrose Park. So that's up there. But Benjamin Crumstock is watching, and he says, Vitas, you're describing the difference between top dressing, which is the quarter to half inch applied to the surface of the plot, versus more of an engineered soil approach. And engineered soils start by getting a lot of compost into the soil and aggressive soil rebuilding, then planting into that engineered soil. In the case that James is describing and many others, you start with soil engineering in years one to three and then move to an annual top dressing maintenance. Uh, something else I'm going to point out, uh, Sarah Batka from Illinois Extension is writing that uh, the Illinois Extension of Cook County has two more community compost collection events scheduled. Uh, for July 16th in Park Forest and July 23rd in Homewood. Um, so uh, these and the links are there in our chat room. I don't know exactly which format this is in, you know, whether it's uh, <laughs> uh, on Facebook or, or Twitter or, or MikeNovak.net. Um, and, uh, and I've been uh, corrected. Arbor Day was Friday, not yesterday. And you're right. It was Friday. I, I, and Forest I, Park is west suburbs and not south suburbs. I've been corrected. Uh, well, it, oh, yeah. Park Forest is south suburbs. Forest Park is west suburbs. <laughs> why they did that, why they chose those two names, uh, no one will ever know. Um, and uh, there was something else. Um, oh, Benjamin, and- Benjamin just posted the U.S. Composting Council seal of testing assurance. Testing assurance yes. program. Every participating product has a testing data sheet. So you really know the product profile, chemical and biological. And this just in. Uh, Thursday, Thursday will include a live Q&A with Jesse Smedberg from Tulip Tree Gardens. So that's part of the uh, Inter- International Compost Awareness Week. All right. So we're getting all kinds of great comments here. I want to go back to this because this is the uh, the finished product, uh, James. And as and. As you can see, there's a combination. There are some who've decided they're going to do the raised beds, uh, and uh, Vitas just pointed out uh, the good and the bad of doing that, or at least the difficulties and, and you know pros and cons. Um, but as you can see, there's, there's a mixture here. Everybody gets to do a little bit uh, on their own, right, James? Yeah, we kind of allow people some autonomy on their garden plots. I mean, they don't own it. They're renting from us. But whatever makes them successful, it keeps them happy. And 
this is what we're allowing them to do. You could see some people put structures up for vine plants. Um, some people just put up rows and put mulch in between rows to keep weeds down. Mm-hmm. In the middle of the screen, someone put um, fabric down so the weeds stay down and they put the um, plants inside the little rows of composted soil. So yeah, whatever, whatever makes them successful. And there's a huge difference between that and that. All right. (laughs) Yes. Huge difference. (laughs) And Peggy, this is what I was talking about when I said that some of this, I've seen some of the soil in Europe because you have clay soil, right? Mm -hmm. And I have, I have some in the area that floods all the time is exceedingly compacted that I just haven't amended versus the stuff that has been amended with compost and right. And and, and that's part of the problem you have. It's the soil around you as, and, and as you mentioned, flooding, that's what happens, and it just sits there on top of the clay, and you're 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 trying desperately not to drown your plants. You know, it's uh, uh, you know this Vetus, uh, and it's and it's a weird thing uh, that I think some gardeners don't understand is that uh, clay soil uh, actually holds a lot of nutrients. There's a lot of nutrients in clay soil. Um, the problem is it holds on to too much. You can't get stuff to to drain. In clay soil, the weeds love it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's not plant available. So, if the typical soil soil class chart, you'll have clay soils all the way on the on the right side, and it'll show more moisture content, right? And there'll be there'll still be a lot of water. It's mm-hmm. just the plants can't fight against the clay because it holds on to it so tenaciously. So you're going to have plants wilting much faster. And when you have that situation, when, you, when you're seeing active cracking, that means that the, the clay is sort of pulling against itself. And if you have a root that all of a sudden has these cracks open up, then you have exposed roots and the plant will dry out even faster, right? So there's stress on the root for trying to pull the water out of the clay. And then when those cracks open up, you have this all of a sudden, it's going to dry out really quick because the root is no longer covered. Yeah. And, and something else to keep in mind, and you sent me this, this is the coolest thing, uh, Vetus, uh, and I'm going to show this to Rick today, Rick DeMaio, our, our meteorologist. This is uh, a comparison slider here. And another thing that folks have to deal with in the uh, Midwest uh, and anywhere in the co- country is what kind of rain are you getting? Now, this, what we're seeing here is c- our current conditions. I'm going to slide this back, and it actually works on here, which is awesome. Uh, I'm going to slide this back to June of last year. No, that didn't do it. Wait, I, I'm sorry. I need to adjust that. Sorry, I, I didn't set. I uh, have to set that up. All right, here we go. Let's go here. And I think, uh, you know what? I set it up last night, and uh, it reverted. And uh, that's that's part of the issue. And I don't think that's last year. It, it's a lot farther than you, you think. There's 2020. There's 21. Oh, and I can hardly read that stuff. So, so much for my little, you know what? Uh, it's a shame because uh, it's, uh, I'll, I'll do it in preview and then, then we'll see uh, what we can do here and, and show that. But uh, let's make the point that you're dealing with drought uh, and, and excessive rain and uh, these are all conditions that encourage you to have uh, compost in your soil, which is going to mitigate these factors. Isn't that right? 
yeah, it's it buffers a whole bunch of different things. So when you have when you have clay soils, it allows for better percolation and infiltration of water. If you have sandy soils, it holds more moisture. And so when we started the project last year, it, I said the picture I sent you is like this little tiny band of like severe severe drought. It's like a red zone for Lake County. And it lined up with all of our sites for the project. And so with compost in the soil, with increasing your organic matter, you're going to have more moisture available for a longer period. So those drought effects, uh, especially on clay soils, will be mitigated. And if you have sandy soils closer to Lake Michigan, you're still going to be able to hold more moisture if you have longer time between rains. Yeah. So there's just, there's, it's, it's all good if you're uh, putting uh, compost down. Um, Marlene, let's get back to you before we wrap up here. So this is a success story here in Vernon Hills. Um, what are you seeing with some of the other municipalities? Are, are they uh, having effective use of compost? You started this in 2020, right? And primarily the soil studies were done on farms and community gardens. We had a number of them that came together to do this. But mm-hmm. one, one of the other things too, just for people to think about too, what's really kind of cool, if they are participating in the curbside programs, that material is coming back um, to our local community here. It's, it's the stuff that's going from our homes is coming back in a, in a wonderful new form that can really benefit. And even people who don't have gardens, who don't garden, um, just applying this to your your lawn can mm-hmm. be of great benefit. So um, yeah, and we are, we are working with um, municipalities, not only to show the how, how to participate. And I would encourage anyone out there, if your community does not have a program, a lot of times they might be ride-alongs with landscape waste. Um, what we call a ride-along program. You call your, call your, um, contact your city board, contact your council, uh, contact your village administration and our city administration and, and tell them you're really interested in this and you want to see, you know, programs uh, happen there in your community. Um, the um, other, um, you know, all the other many benef- benefits too of utilizing this um you know, from my perspective, I grew up organic gardening and composting with my dad from a young age. So I'd love to see more younger gardeners getting out there and getting into composting. Mm-hmm. But um, just for me personally, too, the one of the other benefits, you know, not having um, either reduction of chemicals on some of these farmlands and community gardens, but possibly even the elimination of chemicals. Yeah. So, but... Yeah, the municipalities we here in Lake County, and this is pretty much happening across the country. We, uh, our Lake County Grays Lake Countryside Landfill has about four to five years of life left. We, and we already know about the negative impacts of landfills anyway, but it has about four to five years. They've done all the expansions and developments. So it's, um, there, there's just so many wins for all of us if we're either participating in curbside composting, backyard composting, utilizing composting, purchasing it. <laughs> yeah. So and, 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 and two points that you made. One is excellent that most people don't think about, which is you can put compost on your lawn. Yeah. All right. And, and it adds tilth. 
and it adds biology to your lawn. One of the things uh, we didn't even get in, we didn't even mention the word soil food web, Vetus, um, which is, is such an important part of what's going on in compost. It's, it's all the, the microorganisms and macroorganisms that exist in compost, which give it its aroma, which is a good aroma. And, and if you're doing it right, it's a wonderful earthy smell. And you, you just want to pick up that fistful of compost. Oh, ah, you know, it's, it's, it's the biology. It's the biology. <laughs> stupid is yeah. what we always say on the program. It's the biology. Stupid. Um, and, uh, but there's, there's so much good going on. So that's, that's a good point you brought Merlan. You can put sifted compost on your mm-hmm. lawn and it's going to do the same thing as much better than pounding it with fertilizer with that 28% by volume in a, in a bag of weed and feed, which you should just, just don't ever buy. Uh, it's way too much, uh, nitrogen. It's just not going to be, plants can't possibly absorb it. Um, but the other point was go to your civic leaders and say, hey, I want food scrap pickup. I want yard waste pickup. I want composting in our community. And I want uh, uh, the uh, folks to be able to uh, ac- access it. Um, and if you're in Chicago next year, aldermanic and mayoral races say, unless we get <laughs> yard waste pickup and and food scrap pickup, yeah, you know, I might consider not voting for you. Uh, that might not be a, a good thing. You have the power, folks. You you absolutely do. Um, one more thing before we go. Liz Kunkel wrote to acknowledge Go Green Vernon Hills. Uh, so we should give a shout out to Go Green Vernon Hills. Uh, and, and she says... Um, she says, backyard composting uses as few resources as possible to reuse organic waste, but not everything can be composted easily in a yard, and not everyone has a yard. So the Illinois Food Scrap Coalition has resources related to non-backyard composting options like container swap programs, curbside pickup programs, drop-off programs, community gardens, and more. We mentioned, uh, um, uh, uh, oh gosh, the... Um, Ah, and now I'm going to blank on it. Our 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 former sponsor, um, Collective Resource. There we go. Um, Resource. They're, they're one of ways that you can do it. There are, are uh, there are ways you can do community composting mm-hmm. with food scraps. Um, you should look into those. And one way to start is going by to the going to the Illinois Compost um, Food Waste. Uh, sorry, food Illinois Food Scrap. Uh, uh, hello. <laughs> Try it again. Hello. I'm so excited. I just get all excited here. And I get the Illinois Foods Scrap Coalition. And, uh, and the, all the links are at uh, my blog and, of course, IllinoisComposts.org. Uh, thank you all for, for being on the show today. A very good conversation. I hope folks take advantage of International Food uh, Illinois Compost Awareness Week. Awareness Week. There's too many acronyms. I can't get them all out. IllinoisCompost.org slash ICAW. You know, I'm not even, you know, Swalco and everything else, but uh, thank you guys so much. You guys, and there goes my light. See, it just, they're shutting me down here because I, I have no idea what I'm doing. Thank you all for putting up with us this morning. Yeah, yeah, we appreciate it. Uh, my, my, uh, I'll get better next week. So when we bring you back next week, no, we're not going to do that. All right. <laughs> you guys have a great Sunday, okay? Thank, Thank you, you for having us. All right. Thank and, you. And coming up next is uh, what to do with your bird feeders uh, and your bird baths in your yard. It's the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. We'll be right back. 
best thing about my job is the excitement of uh, waking up every morning just wondering what the challenges are going to be that day. So how do you like my office? We lead with safety. It's the first thing that I think about when I wake up. It's the last thing I think about when I go to bed. We've got a number of employees in the office, myself included, who've been, been around for 10, 15 plus years. So people enjoy working for the company. Uh, staff retention is a thing that we're very, very keen on. It's no secret that the world of arboriculture is a male-dominated industry, but there is a fearless group of women out there that are determined to change that, and I'm really proud to be one of those women. At my office, I feel like you could take just about anyone put a crew together and send them out to a job and have it be successful. And that has to do with trusting the people you work with, feeling safe around them, and knowing their strengths and weaknesses. One of the proudest moments working uh, with Barlet for me was being the first to do training in a Spanish class. Bartlett is all about promoting from within. We really want to focus on our people and make sure that they're trained, make sure that they understand their role and you slowly grow through your experience and then you improve and, and move on to different roles within the company. There's always new positions, even at a base level, myself included. I started off as a climber and have worked my way through to being local manager in the office. Bartlett has been really great about recognizing any kind of roadblocks for different genders, different races, people of different nationalities, and just kind of taking a bulldozer to all of those roadblocks. Every tree needs a champion. 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 Welcome to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. Green, gardening, and environment radio with just a soup-son of humor. Or is that a dash? Brought to you by Bartlett Tree Experts. Every tree needs a champion. Go to Bartlett.com. Here they are again, Peggy Malecki and Mike Novak. All I need is good food to eat and make me healthy, wealthy, wide awake. Lettuce, tomatoes, root, and bacon. What about those sweet potatoes? All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good food to eat. All I need is good tools to make me music, porches, lawn serene. Give me all that I can take. And welcome back to the Mike Novak Show with Peggy Malecki. And I'm going to try to get my mouth together. Uh, just, <laughs> man, I just... I, I can't handle the acronyms. I just can't handle any of it. Hey, let's say uh, it is. It's just alphabet soup. Absolutely. Uh, speaking uh, of uh, of things that we need to talk about, it's John Bates is here with us. Uh, and, and it's easy because Field Museum isn't using any acronyms here. They're just saying it's a Field Museum birds. Uh, John, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, well, and, and it was kind of on short notice because a week ago, uh, I didn't know I was going to do this. I didn't know we were going to talk about this, but things have changed, continue to change because there's been a lot of notices going out recently. Um, if you're a birder, if you, notices. pardon? And confusing notices. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's been a little bit of confusion. You might've seen some things on television, although I had somebody write to me and, 
and say, gosh, I'm glad you're covering this because uh, there hasn't been a lot of it out there. If you're us in our line of work and looking at all the, there's, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, I have a bunch of links, a a bunch of links on my blog post about uh, what's going on here. Um, But uh, maybe in the mainstream, not so much because there's, you know, we have to, Talk about uh, other things that uh, are not about uh, animal and plant diseases. Um, and this is a serious one, avian flu, which is, has hit the United States. It was uh, in Europe uh, in the uh, fall and in the winter, and it's made its way over here. And John, well, what, maybe you can give us kind of an overview of, of what we're dealing with. Well, we're dealing with a, a flu that is highly pathogenic for certain groups of birds and particularly causes major problems for uh, poultry and, and uh, raised farm birds. Um, it spreads via wild birds. And so one of the recommendations that's come out from the Illinois Department of Natural Resources recently is that people should take down their bird feeders. And, and that's the topic of conversation for us today. Yeah. Um, what kind of birds are affected? You said poultry, but raptors are affected. Some shorebirds from, from what I understand, uh, waterfowl, uh, that, that seems to, those seem to be the groups that are, are affected by this, correct? That is correct. And, and those are the primary groups. And that's one of the reasons why there's this, uh, conundrum a little bit with respect to what you should do with specifically with your bird feeders. So if you're not living near poultry and you, you're not feeding ducks and geese, um, there's a reasonable chance based on recommendations. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, you're not likely to have waterfowl in your yard. Right. And so, and so it's also not clear that, uh, well, not clear. It, the data so far are suggesting that songbirds are actually minimally affected by, by, uh, this virus. Yeah. Um, that and, and, uh, Cornell lab, the Cornell lab of ornithology, uh, writes about this. They say, uh, there is currently very low risk of an outbreak among wild songbirds and no official recommendation to take down feeders unless you also keep domestic poultry. Um, and uh, they say they do recommend that you clean bird feeders and bird bats regularly as a way to keep many kinds of diseases at bay. But that would be recommendation in general, wouldn't it? Sure, absolutely. And uh, the Illinois DNR uh, is recognizing that we're entering the month of May, which is the primary season for spring migration through the Chicago region, which is just a spectacular event. And, and, they're trying to get a jump on the possibility that there could be issues related to, to spreading bird flu. And, and, and so it's a, it's, it, I think it's a recommendation that, that if people are definitely concerned about it, they should take down their bird feeders. But uh, I also, you know, the, the guidelines from the federal level have shown that, that current recommendations from that level are that, this has not been a big problem for songbirds yet. Uh, and what, what about, I was going to say, what about birds like orioles and hummingbirds and, and non-songbirds? Well, so, so orioles are songbirds, but, but hummingbirds okay. aren't. Um, and so, uh, you know, but birds that are, that are 
yeah, I use the term songbirds uh, a little loosely there, but 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 basically we're talking about the non-waterfowl that have largely been uh, affected uh, so far. Although, as Mike points out, it has shown up in birds of prey, and mm. so a lot of those birds of prey will feed on water birds. And so that may be where they're contracting it. And, and this illustrates that, that there's a lot of science that needs to be done to truly understand exactly what's going on with all these viruses. And I think, you know, obviously we've seen this with respect to, to COVID-19 too. Well, speaking of the science, um, how is this spread from what I understand? Uh, feces is, is part of this. Um, what other ways can birds spread it to each other? Well, it, it's probably mostly through those kinds of, uh, through waste and, and, and things like that, that the birds are shedding virus, but uh, they can pass it uh, from bird to bird, probably uh, via respiratory and secretions from the, from the bills and uh, too. And so, again, it's, it's definitely highly contagious. Um, it's been shown to be that way. And, and so it, it's concerned, uh, it's of concern for, particularly for poultry. Right. All right. So that gets us to uh, a little bit of the confusion that we've been dealing with here, um, because, uh, again, given that there are a lot of people like me. Okay, I'm in the middle of uh, the city of Chicago in Logan Square. I don't see waterfowl here. I don't have poultry. As far as I know, there's nobody in the neighborhood that has poultry. I can't hear it. So I assume there, there, there isn't. Um, there's probably not, as you point out, a lot of risk for those birds as long as I keep my feeders clean. However, the Illinois Department of Natural Resources thinks it's a good idea for you to bring in your bird baths and your bird feeders. The problem is there's just different kinds of bird feeders. And one of the things that has frustrated me and Peggy in reading these stories is that they don't enumerate them. So we've got uh, the seed feeders, where the birds perch on them. We have suet feeders. We have hummingbird feeders. We have the oriole feeders, which are the fruit. We have thistle feeders. Um, how do you separate all of that and make a determination? Well, I, I think you're pointing out one of the challenges with uh, making assessments like this. So all those feeders are we put out because we want to attract different types of birds. It's probably true that that uh, hummingbird feeders, for instance, may be highly unlikely to spread much in the way of, of disease because of the nature of the way they're structured and, and how few birds actually visit them other than hummingbirds. Mm -hmm. um, we know that that diseases like conjunctivitis um, can uh, that are contracted through uh, in finches primarily. Um, show up in thistle feeders and, and, and seed feeders. And so those need to be kept clean. And, and it's, I mean, that's the recommendation here. But you know, as you said earlier, this has always been a recommendation because we know that, that these kinds of feeders can pass on some pathogens to, to, to birds. I have a question that uh, just came in. What if you have wood ducks nesting nearby? So this is a this is a great question, and and what what I would say is, the wood ducks are probably not defecating around your feeders, and yet at the same time, it's conceivable that these birds, which fly around, and this is one of the the, the birds that come to your feeder, this is one of the challenges for us, are interacting with uh, birds around water, 
in situations where they could pick up the virus. And the, the, again, the, so far, the indications are that this particular H5N1 virus is not particularly problematic for, for songbirds. But, uh, you know, again, this, these are the kinds of things that we can only begin to address through additional monitoring as, over time. Uh, by the way, I'll oh, go ahead, Peggy. Go ahead. I was going to say, so some degree of avian flu happens every year, typically. What's, what's the cycle? I mean, is this something that by June, July, it's kind of gone away? Or is this year, is it showing to be a little different? Well, so with this flu, one of the, the recommendations or the thoughts on it is that, that as it warms up, it will become less of a problem. Um, again, I always like to point out to people that I'm an evolutionary biologist and we are just now getting to the techniques to where we can apply them broadly to begin to understand how these diseases get spread and, and what happens with respect to mutations and all of this. And, and so you're right, they, 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 these flus have been around for probably millions of years, actually. And, and so, again, I mean, we have a much, over the last 20 years, we've developed the capabilities to rapidly genotype these things and begin to monitor this. And so there's, there's actually a lot we have to learn about all of this to truly understand how, how it works. But, but, you know, we know that these viruses mutate and some are going to be, some of the versions are going to be more pathogenetic than others. And, you know, the indications are that this particular one is definitely a problem for water birds and gets into the, to, to the um, farm raised birds and, and can cause big problems. Well, and as we know, we have already culled or seen the deaths of 27 million birds in the United States. In the 2014-2015 uh, bird flu. And farm birds, right? Well, it's, it's all birds right now. Um, and uh, most of them are farm birds or poultry, but uh, there have been deaths that have not been the result of us killing birds. Uh, in the 2014-2015 pa uh, pandemic uh, outbreak, um, there were more than 50 million birds killed. And some folks, some observers think now that this is going to surpass that 50 million birds, which means we've only gone about halfway through this and we're about to see more. Uh, uh, does that concern you, John? Well, sure. I mean, I, that's a that's a big issue. Although I would say almost all those are in the uh, industry, the poultry industry, and they're they're that's a group that that monitors these things and they're trying to prevent spread to protect the food supply. And so that's they're they're looking very closely at, at what's going on in those situations. Um, I was going to point out that that in wild populations, one of the things that's critical is we don't know until we know what's gone on. So, so for instance, one of the uh, events that got people's attention was uh, a large number of double-crested cormorants being found dead up at, in Baker Lake and region. And one of the things that I still find interesting about that report is they think that could be bird flu, but I haven't heard a definitive uh, indication that it actually was. And one of the things that, that is challenging with this in the wild bird populations is you have to get samples into the appropriate labs to do the testing to indicate what's going on. And part of the problem we're dealing with here is that uh, the uh, water birds, it's uh, in an article in Wired that I have linked to my blog post says that uh, chiefly ducks carry it without illness. So they're just 
they're just carrying it and passing it along, but it makes the poultry sick, and of course it makes raptors sick. I saw a report last week, a week ago, about eagles um, that have died from this, and, and they're overcome rather quickly. It happens rather fast, doesn't it? Well, yes, when you're susceptible, very much so. And and we saw this with West Nile virus, and, and crows were much more mm-hmm. susceptible than uh, a lot of other Canada geese, for instance, weren't susceptible as, as far as anyone knows to West Nile. And so that doesn't mean that they weren't transmitting it. So you're right. One of the challenges with birds is they get around very well. And so if you're a carrier and you're a migratory bird, it's going to spread the virus potentially long, long, long distance easily. Uh, which brings us to uh, the migratory routes. Um, some folks are concerned that the Atlantic flyway is going to be um, a spreader. Uh, and, and I would think that the Midwest flyway, as, as, as birds come up along the Great Lakes as well. And, and you, you mentioned to me earlier before the show today that, well, yeah, that's what flyways are all about. That's absolutely true for the wild birds. And, and it's been interesting with this one that they're really emphasizing the wild birds one thing I would point out there that that's always struck me is I'm entirely sure we have a particularly solid thing of how much poultry gets moves around on a regular basis either. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, with the last bird flu, um, they were talking about it spreading to Africa. And the first place it showed up uh, was in Nigeria. And that's not really on the logical flyways for moving around. And Eventually, the story was that they traced this back to poultry movement. And so I think they're, you know, it's, it's a, I mean, humans move birds around too. And, and so in addition to flyways, which can get bird flu around very quickly, there's also the possibility of it moving around with contaminated poultry. Uh, speaking of humans, uh, we just had a report um, two days ago that uh, a human in Colorado was infected by this bird flu, we had a human infected in the UK in December or early January. Early January, it was discovered. Um, so far, both cases uh, are mild, but uh, it and and it and I guess what it points out is that this is not readily trans uh, transferred to humans. Um, but is that still a concern? So I'm obviously not an expert in this field, but at the same time, I would say absolutely. And yet it's true that the people that have contracted it from the perspective of what they've been doing have been associated with the poultry industry. And so they're having significant contact. And so what that means for the public in general is you're not likely to, not likely, it seems highly unlikely that you would contract bird flu by coming out into the public, into the, in your yard and interacting with the birds around you. And I think those are important things to remember uh, with respect to these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So if you do come in contact with a bird or a group of birds that are in distress or have died, what is the course of action? Well, I think one of the really great things in that uh, Illinois DNR uh, uh, post about their recommendations was that if they say if you contact if you come in find five birds that are dead, 
contact one of your local health officials and they have a link to the Illinois DNR on the, on the, on that, on that uh, post to, to, on who to contact and how to find people. And, and you can absolutely contact um, agencies in your local regions and they will come out and take the birds and get them in for testing. And, and this is, this is critical. I mean, it, you know, again, people are often afraid with that, that once they find something like that, that that's a bad thing. And it could be, or it could not be. That's why, that's why we need to do testing. All right. Um, let's recap for folks who are watching and try to give them a sense of, of what their next steps are. I, I would say right now, the Illinois department of natural resources is saying, take down your feeders um, and your bird bath, but you get to exercise some judgment in that. Is, is that, a fair assessment, John? I would say so. I mean, it's, it's a recommendation for them and they're recommending it through May 31st, which is again, getting us through the primary period of migration. But I think if you look at the federal guidelines, I think there's uh, reason to think that, that songbirds are not going to be affected by H5N1 based on the data we have so far. Okay. So, which means folks, it's up to you to be smart. You have to figure and out. And clean. <laughs> if you yeah. leave them up, get them clean. Are you near waterfowl? Are you near poultry? These are all important clues as to how to behave, how to, what next step you should take. And some of you will err on the side of caution. You will say, no, I just, I need to take this down. Uh, this is important. Others uh, are going to monitor, and that's that's the important thing. Anything having to do with science and a changing world is monitor the situation and and see what's going on. All right. Uh, that said, uh, I'm going to sucker punch you here, John, um, and and pop something up that I actually got from Peggy, who showed this to me. Uh, what are we looking at here, John? Uh, that's, uh, me on an absolutely unbelievable trip. I took to the South polar region with, uh, five female penguin, uh, experts. And we are in the Antarctic peninsula and we were sampling penguins across the, the South polar regions. We went to the Antarctic peninsula. We went to South Georgia and we went to the Falkland islands over a month in January. Okay, I want to be a scientist at the Field Museum, so I get to do cool stuff like like this. All right, and uh, be on a sailboat down there with a cup of coffee on the deck. I see that. It's the best. uh, It was an unbelievable trip, and and uh, people keep saying, you know, was it a trip of a lifetime? And I say yes, Um, but if I could do it again, I would. And and where are those mountains? What are we looking at here? So this this is South Georgia, which is this island. um, Wow, that's. Fairly, I mean, quite well isolated. The the, the distances in the trip were uh, a triangle about the size of Chicago to New Orleans to Denver and back. And South Georgia is is uh, an island with a long history of whaling and uh, sealing, um, but at the same time, it's that's all stopped and it's become an incredible destination with just some of the most spectacular wildlife vistas I've ever seen. And speaking of wildlife, this is an amazing photograph. Look at the number. It looks like it's Photoshopped, John. Those can't be all penguins, can they? So that's even a small part of the colony. These are king penguins on wow. South Georgia at, at St. Andrew's uh, Beach. And this is this is what 
nature can look like in situations where uh, in various parts of the world. It's it's it was absolutely stunning. And I'm you know I'm an ornithologist. I go to different places and study birds all the time. I'd never seen anything like this. I, I can't imagine how loud it was there of the birds. It's it, it's it's fascinating and, and the vocalizations are different. And, and you can in the background there you can see some brown birds and uh, juvenile king penguins are these fluffy brown things that take so long to mature that they have to survive the an austral winter before they go into the water and and they have this incredible whistle that they it's almost like they're just like trying to call their parents but can you imagine what it's like for an adult to actually find its offspring in this, in this? <laughs> it's inc it's incredible and yet they do it wow uh, and uh here we go here's an I love this photograph it's that's quite a toupee that this bird has Yep, that's got a great name. That's a macaroni penguin. And it's <laughs> part of a, a genus of penguins that, that really likes to nest on uh, sort of up rocky slopes and, and things. And so these adults are going back and forth to feed their chicks, um, climbing up these incredibly steep slopes. And one more before we let you go. And all I can think of for this dude is that it needs a pair of shades and it would just complete the picture. <laughs> That's a, a rockhopper penguin up from the Falkland Islands. And uh, they're just, again, it's another one of these species that this colony that, that was on a top of a cliff face that was probably 100, 200 feet high. And again, the adults are working their way up these ravines to feed their chicks. And it's just absolutely stunning. So what did you learn from, from that? I mean, a lot, but what blew you away about... Uh, what you learned from, I, I keep from saying, the... it, it's one of the remote most remote places of the world and yet at the same time humans are beginning to have an influence on it so right after we got back there was an article that said that soot from ships is potentially taking an inch or so off the snowpack every year and uh, again I think it highlights that humans affect every part of the planet and at the same time, uh, we need to be able to study these animals and what's going on with them because we're their stewards. I mean, that's it's an important thing. Um, just remarkable. And I'm glad, Peggy, thank you for finding that because that, those are on the Facebook page at Field Museum Birds. Um, it's it's just uh, I'm glad we could do something fun um, opposed to. And by the way, if you had stuck around uh, a little longer, you could have seen the partial eclipse. Um, this morning, and that or was it yesterday? Whenever yesterday. it was, yesterday. And yesterday. Um, and that was the only place in the world you could see the partial eclipse. I, I, if somebody would send me back there to study a partial eclipse, I'd probably go. <laughs> that's it not your call. <laughs> that's not your field of study, dude. Okay, it must no, affect it the bird somehow, though. You know, uh, so quickly. Good question. I think we can work on that. I, Send it back. He wants to go. He's ready. He's 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 got the, he's got the jacket. He's got the cup of coffee ready to go. By the way, John is curator. I I I'm doing this backward. I should have done this first. John is curator of birds and section head of yeah. life sciences in the Ghani. Oh wait, hold on. I have to turn off my, uh, Rick's mic. I thought I had. Uh, let's do that because oh, otherwise, got Jax in the background there. yeah, we got Jacks. He's going to be barking. So let's not uh, do that. There we go. Uh, John is curator of birds and section head of life sciences in the Nagani 
uh, integrative research center at the Field Museum. His specialties include biogeography, environmental conservation, evolutionary biology, and systems. How do you pronounce that? Philo. Phylogeography. Uh, well, it doesn't say phylogeny. 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 No. What? Phylogeny. Really? Is that how it's pronounced? Okay. Whatever. And, and, and. I don't know. It's off the website. And she just put it off the website. And however it's pronounced, uh, you're a fancy guy. And we really appreciate having you here with us. Um, thank you so much for explaining. We've already had some folks write to us and, and uh, appreciate uh, having a little more clarity about what to do with the feeders in their backyards. Well, I'm really glad you're covering this topic. Well, thank you. Uh, it's important. You know, and you don't see it on on every show, and certainly not yeah. at this that not at the depth that we're willing yeah. to do. Uh, John Bates, and, thank and you we, so. We, we, I was going to say, if you're willing, we'd love to have you back talking more about birds on a upcoming show. Absolutely, anytime. Okay, great. Maybe we'll get you and uh, and uh, Stotts, Mister Stotts, to come back and 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 do dueling uh, scientists here uh, on the show. I think that would be pretty cool. Oh, oh, before we go. I, oh, I'm so glad I remembered this. Uh, Monty and Rose, ask. Monty and Rose. I've had people say you got to find out how this is going to affect Monty and Rose, and you're going, you're, 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 you're sucking in your breath there, John, because uh, you don't know, do you? Piping plovers. Well, in general, we 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 know that 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 lifespans of birds are such that it's possible. I hate to say it, that Rose won't return. I hope she does. Um, but one of the things that happens is bird biology is built in for that. So we see this Mary Hennon, who's our assistant uh, collection manager and, and bans all the peregrine falcons in the Chicago region, has seen this over the years, is mm-hmm. it's not uncommon when a mate disappears for the other mate to find another bird. And, do, do, does and the, so, does the, the, the mate know when the other bird has died or do they just wait a period and move on? So that's an awesome question because with Monty and Rose, it's actually really fascinating. They know so much about those birds that they know that Monty and Rose winter in different parts of the country. Right. And, yeah. and so they're, they're, they don't stay together. So no, they, so in this particular case with the piping clubbers, we know they have no idea what's gone on over the non-breeding season for their, for their mate. And so that's a hard thing, but what it, what it highlights is that, and the biggest challenge will be if, if Rose doesn't show up, whether or not another female piping plover will actually pass through the region such that Monty can get another mate. But, but again, that's why you want them breeding and producing young to try to build up the population of piping plovers so that they can actually find each other in these situations. Well, and, and the other question is, could the piping plovers be affected by the avian flu? Oh boy, they could be affected by that <laughs> avian flu for sure. I mean, I, I think that uh, I'd like to think they're a little buffered based on their breeding distributions and 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 sort of plovers, uh, particularly piping plovers, tend to be fairly solitary in terms of they're they're mm-hmm. not going around in big flocks, and so that's probably a good thing. Um, you know, it's a tough life for these birds, and we're migrating back and forth too. There are plenty of predators that could attack them at some point too, and so. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the breeding biology of all these birds is one of the things that, that we're interested in trying to understand all these different factors that can fe- eventually, you know, affect these populations. And 
Bruce Bruce just gave us a crying emoji on here. He's sad about what might have happened to Rose, but we don't know yet. So, so we don't know yet. And she no. was late last year. And so, so. again, it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it, you know, she, what I think is fascinating about this is, is I tend to think about things from a population perspective, but that doesn't mean the individual perspectives aren't entirely fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I hope Rose is someplace in, uh, south of here right now just waiting for the weather to turn and it's going to show up at montrose sometime soon or yeah, she's just waiting for the right breeze to come no, up. She, nah, she's just messing with monty right now okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay john thank you so much uh we're late for a meteorologist rick DeMaio. it's the mike novak show with peggy malecki stick around he'll be right here from spring seed and soil treatments to summer foliar feeding to fall stubble digesters, Blazing Star provides microbial tools from tiny biologicals for natural and organic farmers. They have solutions for home gardeners, too. And Blazing Star offers agroecological education and consulting, especially for permaculture work in Zones 4 and 5. Learn more about these great folks at blazing-star.com. Starting seeds with fluorescence? Let's talk. You've used fluorescent bulbs for as long as you can remember to start your seeds and they work. We get it. Or you look at alternative lights to start seeds and the fluorescents are noticeably less expensive. We get that too. But I'm here to tell you, you and your plants deserve better. It's time to take seed starting to another level. Here is why a good quality LED grow light does so much better than those fluorescent bulbs. Your seedlings will get a better start in life with stronger stems and no legginess. Not only will they have stronger stems, they will be stronger overall in order to fight off disease. You can get them in the ground faster because the cycle time for growth can be shortened. You will save money overall because you can grow better quality plants in a shorter amount of time with much less energy than you use with fluorescence. Time to play that game that you already play every day. Try to look pretty without poisoning yourself. Meet Jackie. She's a working mom who feels her ordinary looks need all the help they can get. Hi, Bob. Okay, Jackie, let's see if you can find a cosmetic product that doesn't contain toxins and cancer-causing chemicals. Jeez, can you give me a hint? Sorry, cosmetic companies don't always have to tell you if they contain toxins. What? That's just the way the game works here. And it's how the game is played for you ladies playing along at home. Go, Jackie, you lose. You poisoned yourself. That lipstick contains lead. In fact, all these cosmetics contain cancer-causing chemicals. You mean I didn't even have a chance? Sorry, sister. That's just the way you play. Try to look pretty without poisoning yourself. I thought that's something that you might uh, appreciate there, Peggy, because you... uh... Mm -hmm. it's it's a huge problem still i mean there's a lot of companies now you you can find a lot of more um non-toxic uh they make a lot of gluten-free products now too for people with gluten sensitivities wow okay and and you can that that psa was made a while ago and and like you said it's still still an issue and and major cosmetic companies the um yeah the big box uh, although some of those brands, I not 
not to get off topic, some of those brands have even moved into big box, but typically most of the mass marketed cosmetics. All right. Issues. Meteorologist Rick DeMaio, good morning. Uh, and this is uh, for the folks watching, and, and they're already crying in their beers. Uh, I don't know why they're drinking beer at, uh, you know, 1030 on Sunday, but uh, Rick uh, is, uh, this is his report for the month. And then you just uh, got a yay, Dr. Rick from Amos yeah. Barrow. There you go. You get yourself a ding. Uh, and happy birthday, by the way, sir. And, and right. And folks, you, you, you're welcome to wish uh, uh, Mr. DeMille a happy birthday. Um, and and I noticed you sent it off to your students, too. You want them to bring you gifts? Is that, is that what uh, you're, you're hoping? No, no, no. Um, it's the website from Purdue University where you can actually look up the weather on your birthday, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I've actually got it on... You'll, you'll, you'll be uh, really excited, uh, you, you know, now that uh, you're not going to be with us for a while, that I finally figured out how, okay, now I'm going to have to uh, expand this. Hold on a second. Here we go. I have, I have figured out how to take this thing and scroll it. Um, after all these uh, weeks, I finally got it to work. But let's go to the bottom because this is what you're talking about, the weather on the day Rick DeMaio was born. Uh, yep, and it, See, what, high, what it was raining. <laughs> it was raining. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, that says something, doesn't it? Um, the rain every day on my birthday. Yeah. So, uh, happy birthday to you, and, uh, um, and go. And a lot of other, a lot of other historical things have happened on April thirtieth. Um, uh, Hitler committed suicide. That's a good one, right? Ooh. Yep. That's a big uh, one. Yep. Saigon Although, fell. wait a second. Wait a second. I read the other day. There are there are people who believe that uh, he faked it. So there we go. Uh, him and like Elvis. Play. Him and Elvis. Oh, um, they they faked and, their deaths. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, guys, you can. See I I faked my death today. I'm still alive. Uh, um, there is. Fall of Saigon, and also the day of the um, L.A. riots. How about that? Boy, you've got a lot of interesting things going on the 30th of uh, of April. Yep, um, yep. And they seem to move every April 30th as well. <laughs> so a lot of interesting things. But we got a lot of other things to talk about, so let's get to it. Yeah, in fact, uh, one of the things and- that we uh, have to talk about is let's, uh, let's start this. So my question, Rick... Because I noticed this, something popped into my head when I was looking at these images online yesterday. Um, it's this Wizard of Oz style, Hollywood style tornado. Is most of the ones we see aren't this way? What's different that this has this super um, tight? Well, I, I think first off, uh, this is your classic uh, dry line tornado. Uh, a dry line tornado is one where you have literally um, a flow of moisture coming in from the south. Uh, with very high dew points, and then a flow of moisture coming in from the west with very dry dew points. So what ends up happening is the thunderstorms can develop uh, basically from about four to 5,000 feet up all the way up to the top of the troposphere. Uh, but at the same time, the western edge of the thunderstorm is typically very clear because of the dry air that's moving in from the west. As the low-level rotation begins to pull that dry air around, it clears out the lower levels, so you usually have really, really good visibility. Um, so you'll end up with this stovepipe t- 
type looking uh, tornado. Most tornadoes, from a standpoint of their low-level spin, probably always look this way. However, the ones that are further south and southeast always get a lot more rain wrapped around. So instead yeah. of having that pipe look, um, the, the low-level flow will fill up with a lot of rain. Uh, when, these, when these tornadoes become a little bit more um, longer-lasting, this was obviously a fairly young tornado because it just started. When they become longer lasting, you fill them up with a lot of dirt and debris. So even though the, the funnel cloud remains somewhat tight, the actual wind around it will fill up with a lot of debris and a lot of dirt. So this is actually how most tornadoes should look. Um, they start out white, they end up going from gray to brown to black, and they also fill up with a lot of debris. So once this starts to really chew up the ground, um, it will looks like it'll get wider. But this was a classic uh, Kansas dry line tornado. The ones that we had around here yesterday, um, weak, extremely weak, EF0 for about maybe two minutes. There was like a low-end EF1 up around Boone County. Uh, but the, the setup yesterday was was much, much weaker from a standpoint of dynamics um, and moisture um, instability, not moisture as far as how much was in the atmosphere. Um, and that's one of the reasons why they didn't last long. But and, you know, I, I, if I just want to make a point before I get back to you, uh, one of the reasons I think this tornado is so dramatic is the you can see the clear sky under the cloud layer there, and you don't often see that uh, behind the tornado. As you mentioned, there's usually rain and, and darkness, but that's just amazing to have that blue sky there, and then there's a tornado popping out of the cloud like that. It's just uh, unbelievable. Yeah, and this was this was Andover, Kansas, um, and it's also uh, important to note out that Andover was also the site of a violent EF four uh, back on April twenty sixth, nineteen ninety one, which tore up, you know, uh, much of the same area that this tornado uh, inflicted damage on. I wouldn't be surprised if some of the houses that were in the path of this tornado weren't even around back in uh, nineteen ninety one. Um, so yeah, it's been a, it's been a very active tornado season, um, as evident of the fact that we've been very cloudy and rainy here. Um, and if it wasn't for the fact that the atmosphere was a little bit cooler yesterday, uh, we probably would have had something similar to this, um, probably in maybe Western Illinois and Eastern Iowa, probably not here in the Chicagoland area. So yeah, this this produced quite a bit of damage. Um, as of today, no fatalities, which is pretty impressive. Uh, but again, when you have tornadoes like this in an area where people know about it um, and they know what to do, they know where to go, the, the outlook was there, the watches were there, the warnings were there, um, everything worked out. And every once in a while it will work out. You can see people obviously have a lot of cleanup to do, a lot of repairs to do, uh, maybe some complete rebuilding. Uh, but the bottom line is uh, the watches and the warnings and the news coverage, the 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 reports of this, these tornadoes happening um, really worked out well to save people's lives. And as you mentioned here in Chicago, then, you know, the next day, and you show this and we'll show in some of the charts here, um, we had a setup for tornadoes, but they were fairly weak. Um, Kathleen uh, uh, and I were in the house and watching uh, live coverage uh, on TV, and then they spotted the one near Oak Brook. Um, and, and she said, so should we head to the basement? I said, well, hang on here. Let me, uh, yeah, I was looking at it and they were talking about how weak the rotation was and having listened to yeah. you for, for many years, I said, I don't think we have an issue here. And of course we did yeah. not. Yeah. yeah. 
and it was and it was it was picked up really well because it literally went just north and east of the site of the National Weather Service radar down in Romeoville. Um, initially, it almost went right overhead, uh, and sometimes you can't see it when it gets that close to the radar when it's right overhead. Uh, but just when it passed to the north and east, you could definitely see it. But it was really small, moving really fast, and and clearly wasn't going to do any damage. But you remember what the Rogers Park tornado did a couple of years ago. All it takes is, you know, one tornado to move through a highly populated urban area, and you can have a lot of tree damage. Um, So you're not going to have houses destroyed, but you'll have trees that will probably come down. Um, And this time of the year, because there's not a lot of leaves on the trees yet, um, even though they're beginning to bud out, um, it probably wouldn't have been the same type of scenario that we had back um, in August of 2019. All right. Well, wow. Yeah. Things happen fast. Yeah. Uh, And I'm, uh, I'm going to, um, uh, the stuff you sent uh, just a little while ago. So I'm going to try to get some of that up because that's the, uh, the latest. Yeah. Yeah, We got some pretty decent rainfall, uh, inch and a half to two inches. Uh, we had two lines go through the set. The first Mm -hmm. one produced probably about an inch, maybe an inch and a half. The second one came through a little bit quicker. And what was neat about the second event uh, that came through between about um, 7.30 and about 8 o'clock, that moved through fairly rapidly, but the sun was so low in the sky, you got some really nice views of of the Mamadas clouds on the backside of the thunderstorms, and also a lot of rainbows as well. um, And the the lightning over the lake was spectacular as it headed east. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it was one of those things where because we were beginning to clear out a little bit, uh, you had quite the quite the show from a standpoint of Mamata's clouds, uh, um, the rainbow, and also the lightning as well. So um, every once in a while, you can get the setup just right where you see um, all three of those. And I and that was uh, it was nice that it came through on a Saturday, but at the you know so that most people were kind of aware of it. But um, this is, I think, since March 1st, out of nine Saturdays, we've had only one, actually two good days where we've had weather uh, that cooperated with people doing things outside. I mean, even though we had a bit of a break yesterday, um, it was still, you know, you had to worry about the rain. You had the rain in the morning, you had the rain in the afternoon, the rain in the evening. And now we're back to um, uh, early April weather, which is, um, (laughs) again, just miserable. I mean, low fifties, cloudy, windy, and it's like, ugh. and it ain't going to get any better anytime soon. Well, and here's some of the stuff that uh, you were talking about here. Yeah. So EF zero, basically like maybe 65 mile an hour winds, uh, Oak Brook, Timberlane, a little bit of damage up around Cape Rin, Colfax, down around uh, Southern Central Illinois, and then some straight line wind damage. Uh, but yeah, that one little spot right by um, Oak Brook, is where you had um, that damage. And notice the photograph was from Patrick Sketch, if you know they're in the bottom. Notice oh, the bottom let's give Pat. Oh. He sent me something oh, uh, this morning. Yeah. I, and uh, uh, that's I at the golf course. Yeah, that's right behind his house. Yeah. Um, so uh, I know where Pat lives there. Um, so obviously they got some cleanup to do with that. Um, and hopefully these were diseased trees. <laughs> So usually it's the disease trees that will probably go down more quicker than the, um, than the uh, healthy trees. But nonetheless, I mean, even, even um, Friday afternoon, um, I was calling this a very, very weak setup. It didn't have any of the ingredients 
that the event had over Kansas and Nebraska. Um, I was actually kind of surprised they put out a tornado watch for us. But at the same time, being that it's a Saturday afternoon, uh, it gets people a little bit more aware of what the weather could do. But this didn't really have the, uh, the markings of potential tornadic weather. The shear wasn't right. Uh, the low-level instability wasn't right. But sometimes they'll put out a tornado watch just so that it helps out the National Weather Service um, in, in case they have to put out a couple of tornado warnings. Even the amount of wind that came through was barely severe limits. Um, there was very little hail with this, some pea-sized hail. But nonetheless, it's a Saturday. It's the first one during the course of the year. And that will obviously get people to be more aware. What's really neat, this is kind of fun to watch. Um, or not fun to watch, fun to look at. This is the first line of thunderstorms that came through. This was about 5.30. Yeah. And, yep. And you can see the way um, the thunderstorms were developing. And uh, all the green planes are the ones trying to get out of O'Hare. The blues are the ones that are trying to get to O'Hare. And you can see they're holding um, up over Sheboygan. They're holding over Indianapolis. And they're actually holding as well. Uh, northwest of Dubuque, and there's actually another spot, you can't see it, where they're holding south of Indianapolis. I have not gone and looked back and seen how many flight delays and cancellations there were. I know there were probably well over 500 flight delays, probably maybe 100 or so cancellations. But uh, the thunderstorms, when they come in from the west like that, um, are always going to have a big impact on both O'Hare and Midland. And uh, and now this is uh, as it yeah, that, that stormed was- through. Yeah, that, that was the second line that moved through. So you can see that uh, the planes were beginning to take off again, um, and that line, once it came through, it enabled them to get back to operation. So um, it's funny. The weather could be ending, could have ended here at, at 7 o'clock. If you go to O'Hare at like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, on a night like this, it's packed. <laughs> yeah. Packed with people trying to get their luggage, trying to get out, trying to get to. So – yeah, that, that airport um, doesn't doesn't slow down in, in severe weather. They're they're pretty busy, but it'll be it'll be much quieter today in the next couple of days. If you if you notice last night after the thunderstorms came through, it was actually warmer in yeah, parts of the city. It got cities. warmer. Yes. Yeah, the temperature jumped like ten degrees because what happened is the thunderstorms came through and the outflow actually pushed the lake breeze back out into the lake. And it was amazing no last way, night. <laughs> I know. It was amazing last night. Rebecca and I were downtown, and we left. Uh, there was about 945. It was about 67 degrees. When we got up to Evanston, it was down to 57. So yeah. the lake breeze actually came back in because the downburst from the thunderstorms was no longer there to push it out. So um, in reality, that little bit of a southeast wind – is only about maybe a thousand to fifteen hundred feet. You get above the surface, and the wind is coming out of the southwest. So that little bit of a southeast wind, unfortunately, which is where us humans live, uh, can make the world of difference between, you know, a, a, a chilly east wind and a day where people in like southwest suburbs go. I don't know. It was seventy degrees with a sixty-five dew point where I live. Uh, but yeah, there's a. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of little mesoscale things that happen this time of the year. Uh, and especially now with the lake being as cool as it is, you're going to see those impacts lasting even longer. This is not good. This is cool weather. Although, you know what? There's a lot of tulips coming up right now. 
And the yep. tulips. It keeps the flowers blooming. Yeah. yeah. Keeps them so, blooming longer. So, yep, I agree. So, so as much as we may not like this weather, this is really great weather for flowers. This has been a perfect type of light to moderate rain, nothing super heavy, nothing like what we had back um, in 2019. We had that massive flooding in mm-hmm. June. Uh, but again, this is off and on light rain. We've got about five to six inches of rain so far since the 1st of April, but it's come over many periods. Um, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, nothing real heavy. Um, and again, the tulips are going to love this weather. You get a couple of sunny days, and if you can get up to the Botanic Gardens or out more at Arboretum, I'm sure everything is going to be looking great. Um, and again, you know, normal high is now up to 67 for May 1st, for the, at least the first week of May. So if you have temperatures only in the mid-40s, you're now 20 degrees below normal. 20 degrees. That's awful. <laughs> that's yeah, like that's yeah. like getting low 60s yeah, the, in july and the soil temperatures aren't warming up in part i would imagine no they're they're not warming up because it's it's so wet and it's been so cloudy um so this is great for anybody who's who's planted any sort of shrub that that needs more i mean put it this way you don't have to water your lawn all right you don't have to water your lawn you're probably not going to be bothered washing your car because every other day it's going to get ruined um <laughs> but I think we're going to end up having the third cloudiest April on record. So if you look at the 30-day precipitation here, um, areas across southeast Wisconsin, five to six inches of rain. Uh, I'm sure if you take a look at the Des Plaines River today, it's probably way high. Uh, but this is great news because now we're officially out of the drought uh, in southern Wisconsin and northern Illinois. So we're, we're back to just D0, but this is through April 26th, um, if you include the rain that we had yesterday, we're near normal now. So uh, we've gotten what we wanted, which was uh, above normal rainfall. And uh, this is great news for uh, folks who are really getting, you know, concerned about the public. The public areas were looking kind of brown in some areas, you know, the public grassways and things like that. Now, the problem now is we got to get this into areas of the desert southwest in California. And that ain't going to happen. So no. the winter wheat crop in Texas is basically done. I was talking to a good friend of mine, John Davis, who is an agricultural meteorologist as well as transportation logistics. And he said, unless they get some appreciable rain in the next week, um, it's over for the winter wheat crop. Now you got to worry about uh, wildfires. And there's been another series of wildfires that took place just two days ago in New Mexico. Um, and, and it's, it's not good there because that, that area of dryness is going to continue, uh, for that part of the United States. And Lake Michigan, again, right now was only 43 degrees. That's about four degrees below normal. And Lake Superior is still about 30, 32 or 33. So, um, if anybody wants to plan a, a weekend getaway up to Dora County, I would say hold off until about maybe the middle of July. Because <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, or if you don't want crowds, go now. Welcome to Vancouver, right? Yeah, and, and yeah, Seattle. really. It it is. It does have a a little bit of that of that going for it this year in Chicago. Oh, oh you know, and we're we're going to get cheated out of a spring. You know, what's going to happen um, on June first. It's going to shoot up to ninety seven, and then it'll huh. be that way through October, uh, and we will not get any spring at all. 
Well, I mean, this is this is spring. This is it's not the spring that we want, but it's no, spring but that but, we're it, but hey, stuff is still growing. It's still blooming. Uh, one of the the advantages of the cool weather is your daffodils and your tulips mm-hmm. and your spring blooms last so much longer i've seen uh springs where you know you get an 87 degree day and they're gone in one day yeah right and they'll last a week like this yeah with where the tulips literally they come up and then two days later they're gone but the tulips right they're doing really well so enjoy what mother nature is giving us right all right and listen rick you enjoy your may uh have a have a wonderful time off we'll we'll see you at the beginning of june I'll, I'll still send you stuff. Don't worry. All right. We'll, 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 I tell you what, if you send me some stuff, I'll pop some of the stuff up on and say, hey, here's what Rick said. I can't explain it, but here's what he said. Okay. All right. Take care. All right. You too. So uh, I, I'm going to dip into that stable of meteorologists I have sitting in the back room. In fact, they're they're coming in for auditions tomorrow so that uh, I can see who's going to do the uh, the forecast next week. All right. Let's get out of here. I uh, want to thank all the wonderful, wonderful people on the show today, starting with the f- folks at the Illinois Food Scrap, uh, 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 whatever. <laughs> I knew I was going to do that. I don't have it in front of me. Illinois Food Scrap <laughs> Coalition, um, Amy Bartucci and Kate Caldwell, who set up uh, having Merlan Rampal and Vitas Papadinskas. I didn't get that right either. James Kim. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm just going home. I'm Dr. Just gonna John go- Banks. I'm going back to bed. Uh, John Bates, uh, Rick DeMaio, meteorologist, Kathleen, uh, you know, uh, Legata and Basil. And until next time, go green or (laughs) go home. Whatever. Whatever. I don't know. I slept through the whole thing. Well, you didn't miss much. (laughs) 